This episode of The Pod Doctors is brought to you by the Kindle book, Saving Limbs, Saving Lives, Advanced Treatments to Prevent Amputations in Diabetic Populations. This Kindle book is brought to you by Dr. Damien Dauphiné, discussing specific patient cases in diabetic limb preservation, which highlight the modern use of wound care technology that has exploded in the last 20 years. With only one advanced therapy available in 1999, there are now hundreds of options to help close chronic wounds in diabetic populations. Dr. Dauphiné distills these options down to show patients and physicians treating these patients how combinations of these products can be used to save limbs and save lives. Welcome to The Pod Doctors. Our podcast brings you into the world of podiatric foot and ankle medicine and surgery, discussing everything from common everyday complaints complex and unusual problems and their treatment options. I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné, board-certified foot and ankle surgeon, and my partner, Dr. Rafi Hussain, fellowship-trained foot and ankle surgeon, and together we are the Pod Doctors. We hope to bring you interesting and informative shows discussing the amazing foot and all of the crazy ways it can malfunction and causes problems. Welcome to the Pod Doctors. I am Dr. Damien Dauphiné, and I'm here with my partner, Dr. Rafa Hussein. Hi, hi, hello. So we are starting our podcasting universe here, talking about foot and ankle surgery and medicine, and hopefully you heard from our intro kind of what we're all about. My specialty, podiatric surgery, and Dr. Hussein's specialty, podiatric surgery, is a medical specialty and is... Um, becoming a very integral part of treating a number of major medical problems in the United States these days, particularly diabetic problems. Um, patients with diabetes have all kinds of foot-related issues. And so over the course of the next several weeks, we'll talk about some of the things that we that we see on a daily basis that we treat both surgically and non-surgically. And you'll get to know both of us, uh, kind of what we're all about. Um, but we hope that this is educational. We want this to be more of a conversation and not really a lecture. We do have, hopefully, some PowerPoint templates that, that people can refer back to. This will be available on YouTube. It'll be available on Spotify, Apple, uh, any place where you get your podcasts. And we would love for you to give us feedback. Tell us what you want to hear about, what you're interested in, what you don't understand about, about maybe a foot problem that you're having. We're not going to diagnose things on this particular podcast, uh, but we will hopefully be able to provide some insight and maybe some direction as to what you might be dealing with and how you might be able to address it. So, Dr. Hussein, what is a podiatric surgeon? Yeah, a uh, podiatric surgeon. So, when I told some family and friends that uh, I was going to go uh, study podiatry, they were like, oh, Kids, wonderful, right? <laughs> and I uh, had explained to him that podiatry is actually foot and ankle uh, a specialty that, um, uh, I mean, just like any other part of the body, we're here to take care of. So what is a podiatric surgeon? Uh, we go through podiatry school. It's a specialty school that uh, specifies in low extremity problems. But, I mean, um, as far as training, teaching, classes go, we're doing the same classes as all med schools. I want to say all but one podiatry school is affiliated with a medical school. Typically, they'll share classes. I mean, same professors, same doctors. So I think there are 10 podiatric medical schools in the United States right now. People might be surprised to hear that that's 
that, yeah. that that's the, the number. And there's a new one coming out uh, in Texas. An 11th that is being started down in the Rio Grande Valley with uh, Dr. Larry Harkless, who was actually the podiatric surgeon and podiatric physician who started the program out at Western Medical School, uh, the osteopathic school in Pomona, California. Yeah. And he's also been integral in residency training here in Texas for, you know, I think, almost four decades. Uh, he's been doing this for a very long time. It has been an education for a very long time. So he's the perfect person to be uh, helping them with a podiatric medical school that'll be kind of bolted on to the medical program down uh, at the new medical school and medical campus down in the Rio Grande Valley here in Texas. Certainly where they have tremendous need for what we do. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think it's important to maybe delve into you know what our training's all about. We, we both graduated with undergraduate degrees yeah. in, in the sciences. Yeah. Uh, I went to the University of Notre Dame and got a bachelor's degree in pre-professional studies, which is the essentially Notre Dame's version of a pre-med program. Uh, go Irish. We just beat Clemson this past <laughs> weekend, which is, was awesome. So I'm going to put a little plug in for my Irish. Uh, and then, uh, Rafi, yeah. you, you graduated undergrad. Where'd you go to school? University of Hartford. I was part of the, uh, the three plus four pre-med program. And, uh, uh, when I was finishing my third year, I had the choice of going to like osteopathic schools, MD schools, or podiatry schools. So I kind of, uh, and looked at them all. I, I kind of fell into podiatry. I kind of, I got the push from my, my family. And, uh, uh, I had this one doctor, family doctor, long time, you know, friend, uh, my mom works with him. I work with him. Very well known. Uh, and uh, he teaches at Columbia and all stuff. And I was like, hey, uh, Dr. Wurzberger, what do you think about podiatry? And he's very, very Brooklyn accent, has a beard and uh, his set of curls and stuff. He's like, he's like, Rafi, you know, <laughs> let me tell you, podiatry is going to be one of those fields that's going to be here now and it's going to be here forever. You have only but growth in your future, you know. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. I, was like yeah. I mean, this guy knows what he's doing. He's been in practice for, you know, 20, 30 years. Let me uh, let me look into this a little bit more, and I, I kind of just fell into it. You know, it has a little bit of uh, biomechanics, it has a little bit of surgery, it has a little bit of clinic. Uh, Very procedurally and, oriented. You yeah. know, I mean, I think that's one of the coolest things about our 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 days in the clinic. I mean, I'll see thirty patients in a day, and it is going to be such a wide variety of things that we treat. Yeah, and that's I think one of the coolest things about our specialty is is we're not doing the same thing every day at all, and um, a lot of them are are vital. To patients' survival of limbs, which I think is uh, extraordinarily important, obviously, but also just uh, treating chronic pain, trying to treat injuries and and, um, dermatologic conditions and and things that are causing chronic pain for patients and and having an effective answer for them, I think, is is really one of the the greatest things that we get to do every day. Yeah, and that's why we need a, a broad background. All our training has to have you know, it has to be just from like derm to infectious it's got, disease. It's got to be based in the in the sciences. It's got to be based in the basic sciences, and, and I think that's what you're showing here with this uh, yeah. slide here, year so, one and year two in, in podiatric medical school, and and it would run right alongside year one and year two of any allopathic medical school. Yeah, so we're doing from everything from like biochem to bacteriology to derm to neurology, anesthesiology, medical ethics. I mean. Uh, everything in between. Our, our third and fourth year, where we, we kind of jump in a little bit more specific to podiatry, we'll be doing um, podopediatrics, um, you know, that's our, our children, our peds, and geriatrics. We'll do medical imaging, uh, which will, will focus more on uh, podiatry uh, pathologies, but we'll, I mean, I would learn how to read uh, uh, 
like chess extra or learn how to read, you know, everything in between. Um, sure. You know. Um, so, in, you know, we're spending a significant amount of time in internal medicine, um, medical imaging, the, like you said, the functional orthopedics, physical medicine and rehab. And then in that sixth semester, you know, delving a little bit into emergency medicine, you know, more internal medicine, advanced imaging. And then you're getting some of the, the specialization, the podiatric surgery, uh, foot and ankle, three, you know, clerkships, uh, traumatology. What was Capstone Clinical? So Capstone is something probably that came out a little bit after uh, you went to school. So okay. that's um, like a physical assessment exam type of uh, class where aside from, you know, books and lectures that you're learning, this was... Uh, so we're doing physical diagnosis. We're doing... Exactly. Yeah, okay. We had that too. Yeah, we had, we actually... But this was an exam that we had to actually had to take. We did too. We had, uh, this, is, this was real, real, real yeah. patients exam. So yeah, we did that with Loyola Medical School, Rush Medical School, and Northwestern all went through Rush the rush program in Chicago where you had to do the, the live patient diagnosis, physical diagnosis classes. And you had to, you had to pat, be able to, to, you know, examine the, the patient from head to toe. Yeah. Um, and they're going to, they're going to show up with different maladies and you're going to have to diagnose that yeah. and order the appropriate studies. And, and that was the only way you could pass that. that yeah, part yeah. Of the course. So, you know, multiple choice exams are kind of yeah, easy. It, it is me. what it is, <clears throat> but, but yeah, you got a real them. patient in front of you and you've got to, Determine if they're having a, uh, you know, if they're having a heart attack or a stroke, or, yeah. or they've got, you know, obstructed bowel or whatever it might be. So, yeah, I think we we clearly had to do the same thing, and and uh, you know that's why I've been doing you know my own pre-surgical uh, history and physicals yeah. for 21 years, and uh, why we have that that privilege. So, and then when you get into you know year four, this is really where you're doing you know externship programs. So you're 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 going out to other residency programs, spending time spending a month here, a month there, where you think you want to do your residency. Yeah. Uh, we had that that same thing. And then spending more time in, in the OR, more time learning uh, surgical techniques. And uh, and it looks like, yeah, senior orthopedics and proto-pediatrics, we had a, a similar similar last semester there. Before you start residency, so all that is in preparation for then going through the match, uh, just like any other medical student, and then getting hopefully matched with your your favorite be all end all surgical residency training program. Yeah. Do you remember that that uh, uh, that stress just uh, waiting for? It was uh... brutal. <laughs> I was fortunate back in that period of time. You could actually be approached by a residency program, and they could say, "Hey, look, we really like you. We're gonna we're gonna match you one as one of our top two. Yeah, and then you can drop out of the match. And I was fortunate. I got my second choice wow. and dropped out of the match. So my, my I got the the second best program that I, that I thought was going to be the be-all end-all. Wow. Having said that, it, 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 I, the first year was great, but then the program was having problems, and I left that program. They were having some issues with the, the, the leadership, and the hospital was being purchased at the same time. So we were all worried about whether the program was going to continue, and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm out of here. So I, I jumped and went to a new program in St. Louis, and so I, I did three years of surgery with 40 or 50 different attendings, Everything from, you know, spending a tremendous amount of time with our general and plastics guys, our vascular surgeons, orthopedic, and then podiatric surgeons. So I, I was fortunate. I, I I literally worked with at least 45 different surgeons on a regular basis in three years and yeah. did, a ton of, did a ton of cases to the extent that um, I didn't feel the need to do a fellowship after that, even though a few of them were available back then. But you actually completed your residency, and then you did a fellowship. Yeah, so after residency, um, I had the opportunity of um, working with Dr. Malay. He's the, the fellowship director at UPenn, the head editor of JFAST, so our, 
our fellowship was actually more based on research and methodology. It was all, you know, foot and ankle surgery, advanced foot and ankle surgery related. But, you know, like we'd uh, be working on the literature behind it. So we'd have an interesting case or an interesting couple of cases. And we're like, look, why don't we try to get this um, uh, published? Let's get the, the, the know-how out on this. Let's see, you know, like one of our studies and still ongoing is, uh, you know, is ultrasound guided plantar fascia injections more appropriate than just anatomical guided plantar fascia injections. I mean, simple things that we're doing, you know, day to day in clinic, but see if there's just a little bit of an extra benefit of one way or another. Sure. Um, so uh, it was adding to the, the medical knowledge out there, yeah. which is terrific. Yeah. 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 No and he puts problems. out a great product. The Journal of Foot and Ankle Surgery is a tremendous yeah. peer reviewed journal that, yeah, he's a, he's a stickler. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've had, we've tried to get things published in that, in that journal before. And, and Scott is a, a tremendous statistician and delves deeply into the numbers yeah. and he will rake you over the coals, uh, before they, he publishes your paper, which is great because he puts out a tremendous product. Yeah. He's by far the, one of the smartest people I've ever met. I mean, this is a, maybe we can get Jay fast to sponsor the podcast, and <laughs> just blown smoke, uh, <laughs> Up his skirt, but uh, no, Scott really is a good dude and a tremendous uh, asset to podiatric medicine and surgery here in the United States for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, let's talk about things that we typically see in clinic. It ranges. It's, it goes from nail pathologies, nail funguses. There was an interesting paper in JFAS that was talking about how uh, when we see these nail funguses that we see clinically, when we take the cultures and send them off like you typically do, that only 50% of them were coming back positive for fungus. So, I mean, I know a lot of patients are like, look, I think i got nail fungus. What do you want me to treat it with? But I'd kind of do like the back stuff. Like, let's see if it's nail fungus before we do anything. Because you can't really eyeball it, no, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm probably maybe 70% correct, yeah. but, you know, it'll come back like in planus, yeah. uh, psoriasis, a number of other dermatologic conditions, which can mimic some of those changes that um, patients are, are worried about both from a cosmetic standpoint and also from sometimes from a pain standpoint. In conjunction to that, same thing with skin pathologies. Patients will come in and be like, look, I think I got a wart and ends up being a corn, ends up being... Or a poor keratosis. Poor keratosis. Yeah, yeah, we see those all the time. And um, there's a completely different protocol for treating those. Yeah. yeah even something as simple as, as just scaly dry skin that, that they think is just dry skin and it's yeah. really tinea, so it's really a fungal infection. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and skin scraping, that. yeah, skin scraping can tell you a lot about that. So I think we're biopsying things a lot more now. Yeah. We're we're a little more aggressive with that because we. I, have you seen the poster we have up in the office showing all of the lesions that you think are just benign lesions, and every one of them is malignant melanoma. Yeah, I had a patient uh, last week. Ankle. Last week I took a, a, a punch biopsy, and I'm almost certain that's going to come back as uh, something serious. Something. Yeah, explain this So. I think uh, all of these dermatologic conditions that we see, you know, almost every day, uh, they, they have to be worked up in a specific way. Otherwise, you're just going to be spinning your wheels, treating something that uh, that either needs a completely different approach or, or is untreatable. Yeah. A lot of patients will be like, hey, can I get a steroid cream? And I'll be like, let's see what it really is. You yeah. Know? Let's treat, let's, let's find out a good diagnosis, hang our hat on that diagnosis. And then if it needs a steroid cream, we can go that route. Yeah. Next thing, very common, plantar fasciitis, the dreaded heel pain. Oh, yeah. Um, this, very... this is the most common thing we see in the office yeah. on a daily basis. It does not discriminate. It it affects old, young, doesn't matter who you are. If you're active or you're trying to become more active, 
you may end up with uh, some plantar fasciitis, and, and me included. I've had it before. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's no fun. So, I mean... We're going to spend an entire uh, episode on this, so we're just going to touch on it today. Yeah, yeah. And not all heel pain is plantar fasciitis. Correct. It could be a stress fracture. It could be um, Baxter's nerve entrapment. It could be a Hagelin's deformity. It could be Seaver's disease. It could be tarsal tunnel syndrome. Tarsal tunnel syndrome. I mean, it could be a whole variety of things. So, not all heel pain is the same, and and we'll we'll go through the lecture on this. Mm Mm-hmm. It's worth it. It's it's worth to spend the time to do, to kind of get a little deeper into plantar fasciitis and heel pain and, and and what it involves because I think there are so many different etiologies. Yeah, sprains versus strains. I mean, that's another one we need to spend all day on. And that video you picked out is just wicked brutal. Oh, yeah. Watching that poor woman go down—that's <laughs> just. Oh, that's awful. I'm, I'm surprised if she didn't end up tearing a knee ligament. Okay. Uh, but anyway, go ahead. Days. So strains versus sprains, um, you know, there's over 100 plus ligaments and tendons that come down to the foot and ankle that, you know, pretty much support our foot structure. And we'll go through these individually, you know, one by one, talking about common symptoms, the common etiologies, and treatment options. And, um, I mean, there's a lot of things. I mean, ankle sprains are probably the most highest uh, of all injuries in athletes, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think you you had a stat on that where it was it's one of the most common injuries in the human body. Period. Yeah, I want to say it was like fifteen percent was ankles, and then like yeah. the next common was like five percent was like ACLs or something like that. Right. It, it uh, they pale in comparison. So yeah, yeah I think it's it, it certainly that was what got me into podiatric medicine and surgery was sports injuries. I, I originally thought I wanted to do podiatric sports medicine and found along the way that that dealing with athletes was let's just say less than appealing after a while <laughs> mostly because they don't listen to you and and I still deal a lot with with athletes and and um, a- amateur athletes and their parents sometimes and sometimes their parents are, are equally difficult to deal with because I think the expectations for some of these kids are, are very high and they yeah. want them to be college athletes and, and they want to get them back to their sport as quickly as possible. But sometimes, you know, time, time is, is the, the enemy for some of those things, but is, is required for these things to get better. And that, that, that disconnect is sometimes very difficult. So I kind of gravitated away from that to adult reconstruction and peripheral nerve where I think patients have a little bit more of a realistic expectation of how long things are going to heal. So just me personally, that was kind of where I gravitated. But I remember, you know, looking at podiatric medicine thinking, oh, this is a, this is a pretty cool specialty. I can have like a regular life. I don't have to be on call 24-7. Yeah. I can I can treat athletes if I want. I can do wound care. I can do all these different things. Just to, not to get off on a complete tangent, but that was kind of where I, what, what brought me into no, this specialty. No, it's true. I mean, I think we can uh, say confidently that if you want to be a non-surgical specialist in podiatry, mm-hmm. you could. You can do all sure. clinical stuff. If you want to do, yeah. If you want to do, and we have those here in Texas, sure. Yeah, and if you want to do ninety percent surgery, you can do that too. It's just how you want to build your practice. If you want to do sports medicine, if you want to do pediatrics, if you want to do geriatrics, mm-hmm. it's per person what you make of it, and that would be the the subspecialty of of podiatry. And, and we have a lot of women that get into this specialty because of the of the ability to to have kind of a regular life and, and not necessarily life. be on call all the time. You know, be able to work nine to five and and be able to go home and spend time with your kids and your family. So, I think it's it's appealed to to a lot of women out there. I think the the numbers of women entering podiatric medicine and surgery over the last twenty years have gone up significantly. Yeah, yeah. 
for that reason, I think. So bunions and hammer toes, very, very common thing. It's kind of our bread and butter as far as what people think that it's, we do. It's the foot deformity with the funny name. Yeah. Um, and most of this, I mean, we can slowly uh, prevent uh, from happening with, you know, orthotics and, and uh, similar things. But once it gets to it, it's usually a finally a surgical decision. Uh, and, and we'll go through the multiple options as far as surgery. Uh, I want to say there's like 180 plus ways to uh, fix a bunion. A ton. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, you pick, it, it is one of those problems that if you choose the, the right version of surgery for that particular deformity, you can have excellent results and very, very repeatable and, and standard results. And, and I think people kind of have a, a strange misconception about the amount of post-op pain involved but we use multimodal pain relief. Um, we use you know a combination of uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, narcotics, and, and even things like gabapentin sometimes. And I think our, our patients are taking pain medication for two to three days after surgery yeah. and, and doing quite well. So, you know, it's certainly not something that patients should avoid if they're if it's starting to affect their other digits. And you can see in the picture on the left there where the great toe is underlapping the second toe and it's creating that hammer toe. If they're either having pain in the joint itself or having the great toe start to deform the other toes, that's really when something should be done. Otherwise, you're going to end up seeing the great toe destroy all the toes and throw them all out of alignment. So, yeah, that's really my protocol. I don't know about you when you when you yeah. recommend surgery. Yeah, it's a progressive problem. I say mm-hmm. if you're very against surgery, by all means, we can figure out other ways of you know trying to oh, reduce yeah. the yeah reduce the pain. Um, mm-hmm. But if you're kind of on the fence or doing you know your research on surgery i say get it done because it's a progressive problem it's only going to get worse it's it's and you don't want to have to fix all five toes yeah. if you don't have to and sometimes just fixing the great toe and the second toe and, and that's going to be sufficient yeah flat feet that's uh that's kind of my favorite uh topic right there so this is a very complex multifaceted problem that i don't know that i don't know that it gets enough respect because uh, you think, oh, a patient just has flat feet. Maybe back in the day, that used to get you out of the military service. But, I mean, it's a very common problem. It's a progressive problem again. And and there are many adults that had very flat feet as kids, and now they're dealing with osteoarthritic changes in the midfoot. Yeah. So it is something that should be addressed on multiple levels, both with bracing and orthotics. And, and at some point, in many cases, surgery. So, yeah, yeah I think we're... We're both identifying patients who are struggling with this as adults who maybe could have had something done uh, sooner in life and yeah. been able to avoid some of that. Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, as it comes to flat foot, I mean, it's a it's a very debilitating problem when it gets bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we can correct it while they're young and happy, young and healthy, it's far simpler because we're going in, we're realigning joints, we're not fusing joints, we're not doing anything too aggressive. We're realigning the foot to be more biomechanically sound. But as you get older, the joints become more stiff, more arthritic. The tendons are, are far more injured, and we're doing more aggressive things to, to fix the foot. Yeah, that's where you've got to stabilize the rear foot by fusing uh, rear foot joints, and, and there's not a whole lot you can do to get around that. And then there's always bracing. I mean, uh, ankle foot orthoses or yeah. AFO braces can be helpful. And we'll talk a little bit about that because I think we have a whole episode yeah. dedicated to this where we can get a little more in detail on that fractures so oh, yeah these are fun so we see from everything from toe metatarsal midfoot to ankle fractures and they're all 
they all have their fun little uh, quirks to them. But I mean, by far the most common are probably stress fractures. Your sure, your common uh, marches fractures, running fractures, neck of the neck of the metatarsal. Yeah, just like that lower left picture, you can see the the neck of the third metatarsal where you've got that thickened area and it looks more white than the rest of the bone. You know, that's a classic stress fracture where you don't see a through and through fracture, but the the bone's clearly been disrupted. And now you're seeing the healing cascade with the healing callus around the fracture site that occurs three, four, five weeks down the line. Now that calcaneal fracture you have in the upper left, those are those are uh, sometimes extremely challenging because the Achilles tendon is literally pulling that piece of bone away from your fracture line. Yeah, it's and, like a rubber band. Yeah, and I've I've seen those treated conservatively with casting, and that is a miserable failure. I've Unfortunately, I had a colleague of mine uh, here in town who tried to do that with a patient just a, a few years, a couple of years ago. And he was diabetic, and he was a complex patient. He he, um, but he was certainly a surgical candidate. But they they chose not to, quote unquote, because of his diabetes, which I think you know is probably a mistake because th- this patient ended up having all kinds of problems to the extent that the fracture pattern got so bad, it got so widened that he eventually broke his ankle. Oh, wow. His heel was so out of position, he eventually broke his ankle brushing his teeth. (laughs) So he just turned funny, rolled on the heel, and then snapped his fibula and his medial malleolus. So, you know, clearly there's a point at which, even in patients who have diabetes or other medical problems, that surgery is still probably in their best interest because of the alternative. So if somebody has, has reasonable blood flow to the limb, they have controlled diabetes, reasonably controlled diabetes, they're not, uh, they're still potentially a candidate for an open reduction internal fixation, which is what we have here with the screws and the washers, you know, fixating that fracture perfectly. So we are, are, are seeing these patients, they walk in, we see them in the ER, we'll see them, uh, you know, at the hospital from time to time. And uh, if these problems aren't corrected extremely well, on the front end, they can lead to post-traumatic arthritis on the back end. Even when you treat them effectively on the front end, people can still end up with post-traumatic arthritis. Hopefully to a lesser degree. Hopefully to a lesser degree, but that's one thing you have to understand is, man, once you've had an ankle fracture like like this dude down here on the far right, you know, that's a fracture dislocation. That joint's never going to be the same. And you can fixate it, and this looks like it was fixated extremely well. Yeah. They, they addressed the syndesmotic injury. They addressed the fibular injury. And they got the the talus back into the mortise, and that that's about as as good as you can hope. Um, but but even with that, you can still end up with problems down the line. So we see folks sometimes who've had you know ORAF uh, open reduction trauma fixation twenty years ago, and now they're starting to have some early arthritis. Yeah, it catches up with them. Yep, yeah. and and so that that's certainly something we have at, we have options for. We have bracing for that. We can also talk to them about ankle replacement. Or ankle fusion. Or scoping. Or scoping. Just simply scoping it. Yeah, just an arthroscopy where you go in and clean out the joint, you know, with the camera, just like you would with a knee or a hip. So, yeah, that's that's absolutely an option for, for a lot of these folks, as long as they have a joint. You know, yeah. If there's no joint left and it's completely arthritic, then we'll usually talk to, to most folks about either, you know, replacement or fusion. Yeah. This episode of The Pod Doctors is brought to you by the Texas Podiatric Medical Foundation. The Texas Podiatric Medical Foundation is a charitable 501-3C organization that supports residency training of podiatric residents in Texas and provides access to care for underserved populations in the United States and Mexico. 
If you wish to donate to the Texas Podiatric Medical Foundation, please go to our website, www.thepoddoctors.com, and donate. Thank you. Nerve injuries. This is kind of your specialty. Yeah, the, I my practice uh, again that video. Where do you find these? That guy. <laughs> oh God, uh, that's crazy. Yeah, peripheral nerve injuries, uh, uh, neuropathy, entrapment neuropathies have become about seventy-five or eighty percent of my practice over the course of the last fifteen years. And so we uh, spent a lot of time treating patients that have been referred to us uh, from other surgeons, either f- with failed previous nerve surgery where the nerve has been decompressed or nerve has been removed and now the patient still has pain. Um, we're a very nerve preservation practice. We try to preserve nerves. We're not um, looking at removing Morton's neuromas like you see in that center picture there. We decompress. Yeah. Decompression or, or you know, very similar to what, what hand surgeons do with the carpal tunnel. It's, it, yeah. you, know, you don't take that nerve out. You, you decompress it. You free it up. You give it more room. And we can do that with the majority of nerves in the lower extremity that are that are that become entrapped. And and one of the biggest problems that one of the biggest problems that we see that gets misdiagnosed are traction injuries. A traction injury is where the nerve gets stretched, and nerves really don't like getting stretched. And that can happen very easily with an ankle sprain. So when you roll that ankle, and you can see on that far right the superficial perineal. It's now called the superficial fibular nerve. Actually, the anatomists have changed that name over the years. But that, that nerve is at risk. And if it gets stretched, I saw a patient this morning that was referred to me for this exact problem. He had an ankle sprain in 2016. The ankle sprain healed up fine, but progressively over the last four years, he's had more and more neuritic pain, which is burning, stabbing, a buzzing sensation all along the course of that nerve. We blocked his superficial perineal nerve in the office and all of his pain was gone. Pain that he'd been dealing with for four years now or three and a half years. And you know that tells me that we, we could have an impact on that nerve. We're going to have to decompress it surgically, most likely, and uh, put him on uh, some supplements to try to upregulate, I think, his nerve function. But I think he's going to do really well. When we tap over that nerve along the course of that nerve, he gets zingers out into his toes straight out of the textbook. This is a classic example. He has none of those symptoms on the opposite side, and he doesn't have the same history of ankle sprain on the other side. So, you know, you put one one together, it usually makes two. But you got to know what you're looking for. Yeah, I think that's the real the real key is that most people, their index of suspicion for a nerve injury after someone has an ankle sprain is pretty low. Yeah. They're not thinking nerve injury. They're thinking cartilage. They're thinking ligament. They're thinking tendon. And that's, I think, legit for the first three to four months. But when that stuff all heals and the patient's still struggling with neuritic pain, that's, again, that's very different than bone pain. Nerve pain is burning, tingling, stabbing, numbness, shooting, paresthesias is the description of buzzing, tingling kind of pain. That's not related to the soft tissue injury. It's related to a nerve injury. <laughs> and so that that's where I think we get these, these folks who've been kicked around by the system. They've seen five or six or eight docs and everybody's pointing in different directions and the patient's getting frustrated. I feel like a lot of them end up going to pain management. Unfortunately, this guy has already had a spinal cord stimulator placed. Wow. And all he needs is a decompression of his superficial, his deep, and his common perineal nerve. Yeah. I mean, it's this is a... 45 or 50 minute surgery outpatient that uh, he'll be feeling great hopefully in about two to three months but the spinal cord stimulator was an attempt to blunt the pain 
from a problem that was correctable. Yeah. That's the frustrating part. Uh, you know, it's a very expensive modality that has potential complications that what really wasn't necessary if he if he had been referred to the right place. And so we're getting the word out. Part of that is this podcast is to let people know that, you know, peripheral nerve injuries in the lower extremity uh, oftentimes can be addressed surgically and, and they do quite well. Yeah. So I'll get off my, my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> gout. So we the- finally have some new stuff for gout. I mean, yeah. for decades, you know, we've had what allopurinol, provenicid, euloric. But no, not, this is but you're you're in the euloric because oh, you're yeah, a newbie. So euloric is I'm talking like forty, new. you know, thirty years. Yeah, we didn't have anything new, and then euloric did come down, and there's a couple other drugs that are being studied right now that are coming out. But indomethacin was the acute pain medication that we were we all use, yeah. and uh, colchicine is another one. You're supposed to dose it until the patient yeah, throws diarrhea. up and diarrhea, <laughs> and that sounds like fun, right? So, but gout's an interesting one because they call it the the great masquerader, and and that's because it can look like an infection. It can look like maybe the patient had a fracture. It could look like even Charcot in some yeah. cases. So. But this is usually in non-diabetic patients. I wouldn't say non-diabetic, sorry, in patients who don't have neuropathy. These are clearly people who are sensate. And it is a a problem with the uric acid system where uric acid is building up as a byproduct of the foods we eat. That's a rich man's disease. They used to call it that, yep, because only the wealthy could afford the red meat and the chocolate and the the alcohol. Shellfish. Shellfish, exactly. So, uh, But now we do see people who are just under excretors. And they just can't get rid of it. Certain medications, um, uh, certainly. Cause it, yeah. Yes, you can see it in people who are on uh, beta blockers. Beta block. Well, not uh, also just people who get dehydrated because oh, yeah. they're on they're on water pills or on furosemide or yeah. one of the, Lasix, one of these other drugs that can deplete your uh, fluid, and then these crystals come out of solution. Yeah. So it's almost like you're if you have a glass of warm water and you're trying to put some salt in there and get it to go into solution. And you'll see the salt disappear, but you eventually put enough salt into that, it, it's maximized its ability to go into solution. And yeah. now you're seeing it crystallize at the bottom of the glass. Well, that's what's happening with, with these gout crystals. They're, they're getting into the cooler parts of the foot, and those joints uh, being the furthest away from the heart are the coolest joints, yeah. and the great toe joint being the most uh, classically involved. And those crystals will come out of solution, and they cause tremendous inflammation. It's literally ground glass in your joints. Oh, it, it, it must hurt like it must hurt incredibly. I mean, like kidney stones and yeah. like, you know, childbirth because patients will come in and be like, doc, I don't know what I need to do with this, but if you can't fix this, we need to cut this off. <laughs> I mean, that much pain. Thankfully, you know, these, the drugs that we have access to seem to be able to cool it down pretty quickly. Um, and we have new things like Euloric and some of these other. Have you uh, tried Christexa yet? No, I have not. So Christexa, I mean, we'll go through gal, but Christexa is this new IV medication that will literally break down the uric acid and flush it out of your body. And their claim to fame is that you're not going to have a flare-up for years and years on end. Um, and how often do you need to do the infusion? So the infusion is uh, uh, like a, like your IV antibiotics course. It's like a, um, okay. you come in every few weeks, or they can even do it at home now. Yeah, they literally, um, I mean, I have patients off of medications uh, thanks to Prosexa. Oh, that's true. Um, that's terrific. Yeah. So we'll, we'll go through this. You know, but, <laughs> I'm not I need to see the rep. I haven't seen that one. So, um, but yeah, that that is one nice thing about gout these days is that we have some new options for the first time in decades. Yeah, I, mean, I had this amazing. I had this old uh, old school doc back when I was in um, back when I was in like third fourth year. That's cool. Gout is one of those things that 
oddly enough, ice makes it worse because, you know, just like with sugar and water, the more you heat up the water. You're, you're cooling off the joint. You're crystallizing it out worse. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah. So he would say if a patient tells you that ice is not helping him besides <laughs> making it really cold and numb, then you want to look towards him. Yeah. Yeah. And he said sometimes you would even just take a bag of ice and put it on their foot and, and the patient was just like in excruciating pain. He knew that it was more likely gout than it was anything else. And I mean, that's when, you you know. You go through your other uh, Sure. I mean, we usually get blood work on Labs. these folks. Yeah. We're looking for a, a complete white count to make sure their white blood cell count's not elevated. It's not infection. Yeah. We get a uric acid level. Uric acid but you can see, even in that lower left patient uh, picture, you can have a red hot swollen joint, and yeah. maybe it's it's heading, it's heading down. It's getting better, and their uric acid will fall into the normal range. Yeah. But even if they're high end of normal, and I see a joint like that, I'm like, you got gout. Yeah, the logic behind that is that it, it's already it's, um, set sedimented i mean uh, the uric acid is it's under, out of it's out of solution yeah it's under normal limit but it's still higher than normal yeah uh, it's under i mean sorry it's under pathological limits but it's still uh, under um so know, the diagnostic limits yeah you're within have. the normal range but yeah. high end of normal with a joint like that ding 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 you got gout till proven otherwise yeah. i don't think it's necessary to aspirate these joints or or to to pull fluid out necessarily because yeah. I think that's kind of mean. Yeah. I mean that would uh, that would really hurt. Yeah. So I think usually it's a pretty pretty good clinical diagnosis. The thing, the interesting thing you'll find though is I think in premenopausal women it's actually pretty rare. In postmenopausal women, it, the averages it averages out and starts they they can get it almost equal to men. But typically younger younger folks, you know, you're going to see this in men far more yeah. than women. Very common bodybuilders because of the high purines that they take in. Yeah, all the all the protein, all the protein shakes and and supplements and stuff can can lead to that uh, absolutely. Next, soft tissue masses, and this is from like lipomas to ganglions to anything in between. Uh, even um, other benign tumors. We oh, do yeah. see tumors in the lower extremity, thankfully malignant tumors in the lower extremity, primary malignancies are really rare. Yeah. So other than melanoma, other than yeah. dermatologic uh, cancers. But yeah, ganglions are very common. We used to, they used to call them Bible lesions because you could theoretically whack them with a book and pop them, but they, they heal up, the sac will heal up, and it'll fill up with fluid again, and you'll end up with the same problem yeah. in a few weeks. Short-lived. Yeah, short-lived. I think aspirating these sometimes helps, but again, you're, you're popping a little hole that's going to fill up again. So until you go after the stock, and that picture on the bottom left that yeah. you have there is a great picture of that because you can see that's actually a synovial cyst. It's coming from, uh, from a joint. So if you, you really have to go after the stock, you either have to tie that off or cauterize that yeah. in the operating room, and then and you'll, you'll keep these from coming back. I took one out of an ankle about three weeks ago that was massive, and it it completely enveloped the entire front of this lady's ankle. Mm-hmm. Um, biggest one I'd ever I'd ever seen in the lower extremity. And they're not solitary every time. So no, they're loculated. Yeah, we get little pockets here and there. And this that's exactly what this one did. It wrapped around two or three of her tendons in the front of the ankle. It's, it was crazy. We, we sent it off because we were kind of worried about a, a pigmented villonodular yeah. uh, tumor, yeah, which can they can become malignant. Uh, thankfully, that's not the case. It was just a ganglionic cyst, but uh, a synovial cyst. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, pretty much what happens when you have a, a, um, a ganglion is your synovial tissue. The synovial tissue is the, the lining of your joints, your tendons, your tendon sheets, I mean, and they'll become weak or... It'll have it can a, be injured. Uh, injured. Sometimes yeah. blunt force trauma. Uh, you get stepped on by somebody. You get whacked with a shopping cart. <laughs> that can lead to it. Yeah, and, and it'll pretty much outpouch like a, a hot truck tire, you know, that kind of gets that weird bubble. Mm-hmm. Same thing. It finds a weak spot. 
out pouches, the synovial fluid gets bigger and smaller throughout the day. Common people, uh, a common thing that people will say is in the evening it's bigger, in the morning it's not too bad, but in the evening it's, it's far bigger, it's pressing against my shoe or uh, my boot or whatever. Yeah, I mean, we'll just literally uh, go in, uh, excise it, you know, cauterize that stock or tie it off, and that'll be the end of it. I mean, very simple. Yeah, there's a 20% recurrence rate, I think, in the literature, but in my practice, because I think we spend so much time going after the stock, yeah. it, my recurrence rate is extremely low. It's probably less than 5%. Yeah, that's key. I mean, taking the, the source out. Absolutely. Uh, wound wound care. care. Oh, you, this, <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is part and parcel with what we do. Diabetes in Texas is, is really out of hand. They expected, this was stats from three or four years ago, but they expected by 2020, we'd have 4 million diabetics in Texas. I think we're probably pretty close. Yeah, it's not past that. I kind (laughs) of joke that, you know, we can turn a non-diabetic into a diabetic here in Texas in like two years. We just, you know, feed them a bunch of of great Mexican food and feed them a bunch of beer. And, you know, we're going to get a diabetic pretty quickly with our our diet here, unfortunately. But, you know, it's it's clearly being driven by by the obesity problem, which is a, a nationwide problem. But specifically, you know, these folks end up with uh, sensory loss. And and it's not every diabetic that ends up with neuropathy or sensory loss, but those that do end up with these wounds, like you can see on the left there, a malperforans or a neurotrophic ulcer that uh, is limb-threatening and is as dangerous as colon cancer. Yeah. And I think that fact is surprising to a lot of folks. And I, I, I say that to my patients who come in with these, and I say, look, I, I need you to understand that this wound is as dangerous as colon cancer, and they kind of look at me like I'm crazy. But if you follow out the morbidity and mortality of these lesions over time, they are as dangerous. And if you have vascular disease or blood flow problems in addition to these, it's even worse than yeah. colon cancer. I want to say it's like five or six times more likely that you're going to get an amputation. Yeah, it, it, and 85% of these wounds uh, that lead to amputation, uh, those amputations were preventable. Yeah. And that's that's, that's a, an optimistic thing that we should focus on, but it's also frustrating when, when the patients wait too long to come in and now we've got bone infection and we're dealing with osteomyelitis well, and we've got to do you know, partial foot amputations. They have no sensation. They have no sensory, right. or they have no pain with it. They're like, oh, it wasn't bothering me. It's just a little sore. It's a, it's a little you know, a wound. It's a, a, you know, a blister or whatever you want to call it. And they don't see the extent of it. And we'll go through, we'll clean it up right. and we'll see, look, it's broken to it's broken to muscle, it's broken to bone. And, uh, and, and Paul Brand said that the sensation, the, the, the fact that we had pain, he called it the gift of pain. Yeah. And it really is because when you don't have that, the motive, if you don't have that motivating factor, that pain, you're going to let things go. It's just kind of the path of least resistance. And you know, we, once we get patients into the system and we're treating them routinely for diabetic foot problems, we really let them know, hey, look, we're here 365, seven days a week. Someone's on call with our practice. If you have a problem, don't wait till Monday. Yeah. You know, if you think you're heading down the wrong path Friday night, get to the ER, have them call us. You know, we can we can take care of this. It's much harder to go back. Like your picture A, B, and C here of this patient who this is probably like a combination wound, maybe a burn wound with a pressure yeah. wound. Yeah, it looks more ischemic in the, in the it, first couple it, pictures. It does, but then they granulate in beautifully. beautifully. So uh, I, I'm not sure what the etiology was there, but clearly that patient was in a limb-threatened situation in A and B. And by C, it's stable, and, and that's a tremendous result. I mean, that patient's very lucky. 
that they didn't lose uh, a limb over that. And, yeah. you know, you see patients who have the wounds in the bottom right. You know, those are classic diabetic foot ulcers. You can't get these to heal if you keep walking on them. Yeah. And I, I tell patients that uh, from the very beginning. I'm like, look, every step you take on this wound is killing more tissue and making it impossible for your body to heal this. Yeah. Uh, we get vascular testing on these folks. We work very, very closely with our interventional radiologists and our interventional cardiologists and vascular surgeons on trying to get perfusion, making sure the patient has blood flow, because without that, there's really nothing we can do. Yeah, it's a team effort. I mean, Absolutely. vascular, podiatry, infectious disease, and endocrinology in your primary care medicine. I mean, we're working all in this one group to help try to prevent these, yeah. prevent these amputations. So yeah, I like your picture on the top left. Uh, if this pick bothers you, then you are lactose intol- <laughs> lactose intolerant. Um, you don't want to end up with that patient. You don't want to be that patient because that even that partial hallux amputation throws off the mechanics. That patient's 50% more likely to end up with a new, another amputation within two years. Yeah. And that that's uh, preventable. So we get people into diabetic shoes. We, we protect their feet once we get them in the system here. You can do those smart socks? Yeah, I think the Siren smart socks are really amazing. We may have to do an episode on that and bring in the Siren folks and have them yeah, uh, talk a little bit more about that because this is a new technology using smartphone technology and electronics that are built into these socks that can measure pressure and temperature. Yeah. And we know from studies over the last two decades, some by Larry Lavery and David Armstrong, mm-hmm. showing that you know you can measure temperature and pressure in these patients and know where they're going to get an ulcer and almost when they're going to get an ulcer. Yeah. And so these socks can send signals to a, a central monitoring station that's reading all this data, and then they can call us and say, hey, look, Mrs. Jones is heading down the wrong path. She's got an area under her great toe that is about to ulcerate if you don't get her in right away. Yeah. And then we can call a patient, get them in right away, and they haven't broken down yet. And that's the best time to see them and be able to say, okay, your shoes, we need to change your inserts because you're getting a pressure point here. We can show them where the pressure is and, and how we're going to offload it. That's way more effective than getting to this point, you yeah. know, in this patient and your amputation picture. Yeah, you're working upstream when you're doing it at this point. Yeah. So I think using pressure and temperature and using these smart socks to be able to uh, to diagnose these folks with problems before they end up with a wound is really game-changing. And mm-hmm. I think it's going to be exciting. We're trying to get more and more of our patients to jump on board. It's covered by insurance. Uh, certainly the Medicare plans mm-hmm. are covering it. So that that could end up being a huge game changer. Yeah, it's prevention because, I mean, next picture, we're talking about amputations. Right. It's probably the worst conversation to have with a patient. It's the least fun thing we get to do. Yeah. By far. So we're telling them, look, you know, your your foot's at that point where it, it can't go backwards. We're not able to reverse it. And, and you can see this picture here. This is clearly a patient who has a vascular problem. Yeah. So this isn't from an infection. This is blockages in, in the arterial flow down to the foot. Diabetic patients are more commonly suffering from this based on a number of different issues, but they, they clearly lay down plaque um, yeah. easier. And some of them are also smokers. And that combination is just brutal. Yeah. Uh, that combination is causing all kinds of problems with, with blood flow in the lower extremity. The main area of, of entrapment seems to be entrapment, I shouldn't say entrapment of, of narrowing is behind the knee because of that trifurcation disease. Yeah. You got one vessel 
splitting into three, you get lots of turbulence. And the thought is that that's allowing plaque to be laid down in a much more aggressive fashion. Yeah, a lot of patients think this that just happened uh, from last week. I was at the barbecue and uh, I had my foot, you know, you know, too close to the fire. I, uh, I wore tight shoes that day. I wore new shoes. This is years and years of, yeah. of buildup. There may be something that pushed it over the hump, but, yeah. but you know, clearly this isn't going to happen over a weekend from some incident in someone who has completely normal blood flow. And the, and the other thing is, this would be excruciating long before yeah. you get black toes in someone who has normal sensation. It's that so, sensation where you tie your finger off with a rubber band and you get that, that oh, deep man. ache when you're, you know, you're young. Ischemic pain is brutal. Yeah. Narcotics don't work well for it. So you know, the fact that these patients are also neuropathic oftentimes means th- that the changes can occur rapidly and they're not going to know it it's a vicious cycle yeah and so that's that's really the scary part yeah so we work again we work very closely with our vascular interventionalists and we're trying to identify these folks and who would benefit from vascular intervention to have these blood vessels opened up before they end up in a situation where they have gangrenous toes yeah and like we said before uh, as far as podiatrists go we see a lot of diabetic foot problems i mean amputations uh, their statistics are that one major limb amputation and within five years, you're more likely to have the opposite limb amputated. And if, it's a, and if it's a major amputation, yeah, the, the mortality rate is 65% at five years, yeah, depending on who you read. Yeah, it's significantly high. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to prevent all these um, problems from occurring and, and work backwards and get back to a, a healthier state. And sometimes an amputation is still a success. I mean, yeah. If you're doing a partial foot amputation rather than a below knee amputation, that's yeah. a huge benefit to the patient. Yeah. And we know this from studies that are looking at cardiac output. These people already have cardiac output issues. And if you ask them to walk with a prosthetic limb, I don't know about you, but I, I've been doing this 21 years. I can count on one hand how many of my below knee amputation patients have actually gone through the rehab and walk with a prosthetic limb. Yeah. It's less than five. Yeah, it's not often. It's not often because they they don't have the the capacity. They don't have the the energy stores, and the the perfusion and the cardiac output to do the work, to be able to walk with a prosthetic limb. Yeah. And they usually end up in a wheelchair, and and many of them are not around within five years. It's really yeah. sad. End up in a wheelchair uh, in a rehab facility or a long term acute right. care facility because they can't take care of themselves and. It's not just, you know, you're a young, healthy individual and you can hop around on one leg. Yeah, traumatic in, in, uh, amputations, you know, 20-year-old who has it blown off, on, God forbid, in Afghanistan or Iraq, those guys do great yeah. because, you know, they're mostly, they're not smokers, they don't have diabetes. But in the diabetic patient, it can be a death sentence. And yeah. so that that's really why we go to the ends of the earth to try to save limbs or as much of the limb as possible because the chances the patient's going to stay functional are so much greater. I mean... That's the end of the, the uh, lecture, end of conversation. Uh, yeah. Podiatrist, we're here to help. Your feet are important. You know, go see your local podiatrist. You know, get checked out. And you've got some great stats here about diabetes. I mean, I mentioned the Texas Diabetes Council stats from a few years ago where they thought we'd have 4 million in Texas by 2020, and by 2040, we'd have 8 million. 8 million diabetics in Texas in 2040, if that really does come to fruition, that'll be one quarter of the state. Yeah. The amputation rate that would go along with that, just on the normal course of things, will be overwhelming. And there aren't enough of us dealing with this in 2020 and 2040. We're, we're going to be so far behind that a lot of this care is going to get is going to get sloughed off onto secondary providers or ancillary providers, nurse practitioners, people who don't necessarily have 
all the skill set to address the full gamut of problems in the lower extremity or have the biomechanical and, and, and anatomic training that we do. Mm-hmm. And it's it's going to be worse. So we have to get ahead of this as quickly as we can now. And, and maybe things like the smart sock, maybe things like siren yeah. socks will help us identify these people before they end up with the ulcers and we can prevent the amputations that way. We, we need some help, though, because there aren't enough of us to address just in the state of Texas, all the patients that we're going to have to treat in the next 20 years. Yeah, that's what we're really working toward prevention. And we're not trying to, you know, get to the point where we're talking about amputation. We're trying to do things before it even becomes a sore, before they get neuropathy, before their diabetic, you know, A1C is sky high. We're, we're trying to do everything we can so we don't get to that point, so we're not seeing all those amputations. So every hour, 10 Americans undergo an amputation due to diabetes. Oh, yeah. That's, that is a scary stat. And 25% of people with diabetes will develop foot ulcers, and the recurrence within five years is 28 to 51%. I have something to say about that. So my close friend and orthopedic surgeon who's retired now, Scott Nickerson, um, he actually published a paper with some of my other colleagues looking at the recurrence rate after a nerve decompression. So after decompressing the tibial nerve, the common fibular, deep fibular, superficial fibular, and the lower extremity for this particular problem, for people who had neuropathy, painful neuropathy, but were also having ulcers, yeah. that you can reduce that recurrence rate down to 3 to 5%. Wow. After that surgery. And, and we know this because there were patients who had only had it done on one side and ended up continuing to ulcerate on the side that they hadn't had done yet. So that is a fantastic study. There's another study uh, by Shai Rosen, who is a plastic surgeon down at UT Southwestern here in Dallas, it was an ongoing study. It's a randomized controlled study using every specialty you can think of that has to do with diabetes, uh, looking at the applicability of nerve decompression in these folks and whether or not it actually works and whether or not it's effective. It's an ongoing study, but they're already finding that these patients benefit from this surgery when they're selected appropriately. When I meet, what I mean by that is these are people who have you know a, a mix of painful and, and sensory loss, neuropathy. Uh, they have reasonably controlled diabetes, um, and they're at risk. And those folks do extremely well. And we're hoping to see multiple subsequent iterations of, of this paper because it's still ongoing. Uh, Dr. Rosen and his colleagues at UT Southwestern are still you know, tabulating all this data that they've collected over the last several years. But I think the initial, the preliminary data is, is very favorable <clears throat> for this technique, which I think has been I think it's been poo-pooed and, and even lambasted by certain specialties, including neurology, who didn't think that you know you could actually have an impact on the diabetic neuropathic patient. They they felt that it was a stocking glove progressive problem that that wasn't a surgical problem. And that's why we need the literature. That's why we need research. And and I think I think that the disconnect there was that people were assuming we were treating the diabetic neuropathy. What we're treating is an entrapment neuropathy on top of yeah. what's happening metabolically to the diabetic nerve. And I think that's what's very different. Patients who have diabetes get carpal tunnel 30% more likely than non-diabetics. Yeah, There's because, a reason for that. Yeah, their, their soft tissue, it's been shown that they have excessively more cross-linking sure. the collagen fibers. stiffening of, of ligaments, stiffening of, yeah. of the tunnels themselves. And you get a nerve that becomes swollen, osmotically swollen. Yeah. Uh, there's a theory, the sorbitol pathway theory, where... Yeah where the, the nerve is taking in the sorbitol, which is a byproduct, uh, sort of a cascade byproduct. The nerve sheath. The, the nerve sheath. Yeah, but, but, you're, but you're also seeing, but yeah, yeah, you're seeing edema 
in the entire mm-hmm. nerve. Yeah. And that, that edema, that uh, osmotically um, mediated edema, these nerves are two to three times the normal size yeah. Of, oh, yeah. of non-diabetic nerves sometimes. I published a study in 2005 that was that was published in, in the Journal of the American Podiatric Medical Association looking at ultrasound studies, non-diabetics, diabetics with neuropathy, and diabetics without neuropathy. Mm-hmm. And what we found was, this is a relatively small, small study, but it was effective because it was showing that with ultrasound, you could measure the cross-sectional area of the tibial nerve in a non-diabetic and a diabetic who had no neuropathic symptoms, and they looked about the same. They were about 12 millimeters squared. But when you looked at the diabetic patients who had neuropathic pain, who had sensory loss, their nerves were two to three times the normal size trying to go through the same tunnel. So you've got, you know, this tiny little tunnel and the nerve is trying to go through it and it's two and a half times the size. It's getting squeezed and pinched and that causes burning, tingling, numbness. Uh, And if it's not addressed, you end up with, you know, basically nerve death, where yeah. the nerve is no longer functioning. And when you see these patients, when you do tarsal tunnel releases on these patients, the intrinsic musculature in the foot should be red and beefy. It's, it's pale. Yeah. It's, you can see through it. It's translucent yeah. because there's no more function. You have a denervated muscle now. And that's why they end up with the hammer toes and mm-hmm. these horrible deformities when they when they suffer from neuropathy. So anyway, I'm, I'm totally going on on <laughs> Massive tangent on diabetic foot, but it's necessary because it's it's one of the major problems that we see, and it's not going anywhere, unfortunately. Diabetes is the seventh leading cause of death in the United States, and um, that doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. Uh, hopefully, in our lifetime, we will find a better way. Yeah. Uh, right now, we gotta we gotta cure COVID, but you know the next thing we need to figure out is what can we do to eliminate diabetes from the planet because it, it's one of the few problems that affects. So many different organ systems. It affects yeah. your eyes, your nerves, kidneys. your kidneys, your heart, your entire cardiovascular system, yeah. your skin, your ligaments. I mean, all the glycosylation of all these tissues is causing damage. Yeah. That's like the only thing I can think of it doesn't affect necessarily that I'm aware of is maybe your lungs <sighs> and your liver, maybe. I mean, I can't think of any direct impact on the liver. So, you know, I mean, can you imagine other medical problems that we're treating that have that kind of impact on on major organ systems. It's really scary. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But it's a very manageable disease process yeah. now. Yeah. I mean, we can do a better job. There are all kinds of ways that we can measure blood sugar and do that more effectively and help people be more compliant where they can keep their blood sugars under control and, and avoid a lot of these complications. People yeah. can live a, a, a nice long life with diabetes now. Back in the day when you had type 1 diabetes or juvenile diabetes... It was a death sentence. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they were expecting folks, people to pass away around 30s, 40s. Yeah, they just now, couldn't tolerate it. Yeah, and now we have such well control that you'd never even know that they were diabetic. I have a type 1 diabetic in my practice now. He's had it for 50 years. Yeah. So, you know, she's she's doing great. But that, I think, probably kind of ends our, our conversation today. We're heading up on an hour. We did a good job. Yeah, that, was, that, was a, that was a fun topic. <laughs> I like I like your last, uh, your last little <laughs> gif here of good old Jim Carrey with his hobbit feet. That's classic. So both feet make up 25% of the body's bones, 18% of the joints, and 6% of the muscles, and 100% of the problems that walk in our door. <laughs> but we are we are the pod doctors, and uh, we hope to give you guys some educational information and, and do that for free. Um, we would hope that you would subscribe and like us and go to our website, thepoddoctors.com, look into our medical mission project, which is the Los Niños de la Frontera project. 
through the Texas Podiatric Medical Foundation, which is a, a charitable organization that has reach, uh, outreach to folks uh, all, over the, all over the world. We have programs uh, that are dedicated to trying to help folks, in, specifically in San Miguel de Allende, Mexico right now. We had had uh, some relationships with uh, hospitals down in Reynosa, Mexico, and we transitioned that to San Miguel to the uh, Hospital General in uh, San Miguel. We are recognized by the Mexican government, have been providing care for those folks for several years now. More information is on our website, and you have the opportunity to, to use our GoFundMe for our medical mission project. If you have if you have the time, please go take a look at that, and we would greatly appreciate it. But until next time, we are the Pod Doctors. I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné. I'm Dr. Hussein. And we will see you next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Pod Doctors. We appreciate all of our listeners and subscribers. If you'd like to hear more, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and watch our videos on YouTube. Like, thumbs up, subscribe, and be safe. See you all next time. Bye-bye.